0: Returning for our consideration this morning, back to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And since this is the last of the two Sundays that I'm here, let me say once again what a a joy it's been to be with you folks uh, this week. Uh, You know, every time I come back, it seems that there's a a period of adjustment that I have to go through. Uh, I realized this... Uh, years ago there's always something with my stomach when I come here usually it takes me about three or four days to kind of get acclimated and I'm convinced it has something to do with the the low humidity something to do with the the uh the atmosphere here the same thing happened when I went to Phoenix Uh, we went to uh, the Grand Canyon uh, me and uh, Craig uh, when I was there and uh Most people, when they go to the Grand Canyon, don't feel like it's a trip to the Grand Canyon unless you, like, hike down a little bit and then hike back up. Uh, The problem is you don't really hike down. You kind of, like, slide down, and then you can hike. And uh, what most people that visit the Grand Canyon don't realize is that uh, it's almost 7,000 feet high in the the altitude, and I've been to Denver before. Denver's 5,000. Uh, 200 the mile high city and it really didn't affect me when I was younger because uh, I didn't notice it until I went running which obviously as you can tell I don't do much of anymore but uh, when I went running I could feel it my lungs felt tight I knew there was something with the altitude Uh, but coming here I didn't feel I don't feel that in my lungs it's around 4,000 feet here maybe a little less Um, but when I was in the Grand Canyon All I did was walk from the car to the place where you look out over the canyon. And I could already feel something was not right. And so when I saw what it took to hike down into the canyon, the almost immediate drop, and then you could kind of hike. I thought, well, wherever there's an immediate drop, that means there's an immediate incline coming out. And there was no possible way I was going to make it up. Uh, So I told Craig... uh, Let's drive around and, and look at a few nice vantage points of the canyon. And so that's what we did. So I say all that to say that uh, whenever you travel, especially it seems as you get older, you have to keep these things in mind. Not everything was, was a struggle this week. I, uh, without going into too much detail, I probably uh, tasted uh, chocolate chip cookies yesterday that were top five uh, of my all-time favorite that I've ever had. I'm not going to say who made them, but... Uh, if she hopes that they climb the ladder, I may have to have some the next time I come just to see if maybe they could be four or three or, or maybe even higher. But uh, uh, I had no stomach issues after I ate those, I assure you. Um, but it's been a good, a good uh, time here. I spent some time with Isaiah and some of the other young men yesterday. Uh, had a beautiful day other than for the wind, which unfortunately cut our day a wee bit short. Uh, But uh, it's been a good week, and uh, Lord willing, as I said, uh, in two Sundays, uh, in the will of God, I'll be back with you. But I want to finish up the section in Hebrews concerning Christ as creator. I had mentioned this uh, last Sunday that uh, originally I was just planning to end that section last week, but I felt that maybe a few other things needed to be said concerning Christ as creator. And so we'll just read the first three verses and then ask the Lord to bless ...our time this morning. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners... ...spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets... ...hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son... ...whom he hath appointed heir of all things... ...by whom also he made the worlds... ...who being the brightness of his glory... ...and the express image of his person... ...and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 3. Let's bow our heads in a brief word of prayer. Our Father, we come to Thee now at this most important time of the service, the time of the preaching of the gospel of Christ. And Father, we pray that... The entrance of thy word would indeed give light. Give light unto thy people. Give light unto the preacher and the hearers alike. Remember those that may be unsaved. Father, speak to them as well. We pray that the word of God indeed would have free course and be glorified. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, As I said, this will be the last Lord's Day that we consider that phrase, that section in verse 2 where we are told concerning Christ uh, and the, the uh, position that He has been given by the Father, where it says, by whom also He made the worlds. There is, uh, whenever you deal with Scripture, uh, there, is, there are a few things to keep in mind uh, as you approach different doctrines in the Word of God. The first thing is, although just as true, and just as properly called the Word of God, not every doctrine that is taught in the Word of God or taught in the Scriptures is, uh, is, is, is the same weight. Not every doctrine carries with it the same doctrinal weight and importance. When the Lord was on the earth, there were those that were attacking Him concerning how He approached the hedge that the Pharisees put around the law. And in dealing with that hedge, and specifically how it applied to the Sabbath day, and speaking about the Pharisees, the Lord told them that they focused so much upon the minuscule things, but they ignored the weightier matters of the law. In that case, uh, he was talking about how they tithed. And he said that you make sure you tithe even the mint, and the cumin and these, these little things, everything about your uh, gain, you make sure that you tithe those things to the Lord. But he went on to show them their hypocrisy by ignoring the weightier matters of the law. And so you find that throughout the scripture, that there are times where we are instructed as to weightier matters And we are told that there are other things that may be good in and of themselves. The Lord never told the Pharisees that what they did was wrong in tithing the mint and the cumin. But what he said was they ignored the weightier matters. The heavier doctrines. The doctrines that by divine decree have received the weight and the attention. So much so that most of the inspired revelation would be given over to dealing with those doctrines. It's not to say that the other ones aren't true, but there are weightier matters that you find from time to time in the Word of God. So keep that in mind, that not every doctrine within the Bible is essentially as weighty. The second thing that we need to remember is there are many things that we don't know that have not been revealed to us. We have been given the revelation of God. We have been given uh, God's inspired Word. Within that revelation, God has given us everything that is essential for us to know not only about Him, but also about what He has done to meet us at the greatest point of our need, which is our sin. When the Spirit of God came into the world uh, with power, the Lord says when He comes, He's going to convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And those three, I believe, sort of sum up the whole entire intent of God's revelation to man. Yeah, there are other things. There are sections that are given over to dealing with earthly kingdoms and genealogies and and things that may appear surface, uh, you know, when you go through the the, the Scriptures. But by far, uh, the overwhelming understanding of the Word of God is that the Bible has given to us, uh, has been given to us to show us sin righteousness and judgment sin righteousness and judgment and so concerning other things the Lord has chosen to leave them out now specifically when it comes to uh, the things that happened on creation and then before creation obviously there are things that we have not been told by God the father where did the devil come from there are passages, like you may find in the book of Isaiah, that talk about Lucifer, son of the morning, and how he fell from heaven. There's debate as to whether that's even referring to the devil. Uh, but whether, be that as it may, uh, there, there is not much, if anything, given to us in the scriptures concerning where the devil came from and how he fell. Where did, uh, why did God allow sin Things that the Bible talks about concerning sin, we can deduce. But there are things that took place before we were even shown that time entered in, in, in the scriptures that no doubt happened, that the Lord has seen fit to not show us. And the same thing can be said concerning creation. We have been given the account of creation in the first three chapters of Genesis, not just creation, but the man's fall into sin. And then after that, there may be passages that glory in God's creation, but not much detail concerning what took place. And so even in the realm of creation, there is going to be, there are going to be times when we won't have all the answers, but the important thing is to focus on what clearly has been revealed, passages as we have today in Hebrews chapter 1, that apply the work of creation to Christ. and So keep that in mind as well. Not just that every doctrine isn't as equally weighty, although true, but there are some things that we have not been told, and it's not for us to pry into. And then the third thing to keep in mind is that when surmising on these things and, and, and offering suggestions and thoughts as to what may have happened to try to potentially fill in the gaps, humility and meekness should rule the day. Humility and meekness. In Luke chapter 4, verse 22, uh, it was observed concerning Christ's words uh, that the words that came out of His mouth, they marveled at the gracious words that proceeded out of His mouth. Christ was preaching on the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven and the gospel that He was preaching was accompanied with grace, gracious words. And then Paul also says something similar In Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, concerning our speech, let it always be gracious with humility and meekness seasoned with salt. And so keep that in mind as well. If if you're governed by those three things, that not every doctrine receives as weighty consideration as others, there are things that we don't know that really we should not pry into, and that even when we are putting together what we believe to be a, th- a theology concerning creation. It should always be in humility and meekness. I think those are good guidelines concerning some of the things concerning creation. Now, last week I said that I want to deal with the earth itself. And the title of today's message is going to be The Earth, Past, Present, and Future. The Bible talks about things concerning the earth in the past. The Bible gives clear revelation concerning things applying to earth in the present and praise the Lord for our encouragement and our hope. He tells us much about what will take place in the future for the earth. And so I want to consider this theme under three headings. Uh, the, The world that Christ created was far different than the world that exists now. That's the first thing we're going to consider. The second thing is the world that exists now has an end that has already been determined. And then the third thing is the world that is coming will continue for all eternity. Those are the three things I want to consider this morning. First of all, the world that Christ created was far different than the world that exists now. And again, uh, concerning this whole issue of the world before, uh, that existed before the flood, uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to uh, give a proviso here is that even among good Christian scientists there is difference of opinion. Even within organizations that have been raised up by the Lord to defend the biblical doctrine of creation, even within those organizations there is great difference of opinion. And at first I thought that that maybe tended toward confusion, but now having studied this myself, I'm actually encouraged that in regard to the way the world was before the flood, it encourages me that there are differences of opinion. Not everyone's going to be right, obviously. If, if everyone, if, if, if five people working for Answers in Genesis have five different opinions as to specifics concerning the world that used to be, they're all not going to be right. And they all, none of them may be right. No one may have the right answer, but we know they all can't be right. But I think that's almost by design that when it comes to speculation and trying to fill in the gaps of things that are not clearly revealed in the word of God, that there's going to be differences of opinion. For instance, in our own denomination, we have two major doctrines in, within the, contained within the realm of orthodoxy that we not only give opportunity to disagree, uh, but to then Uh, each side that disagrees can be members in good standing. Uh, It's not like we would say, well, that may be your liberty, but to be a member of this church, you have to hold a certain view. We understand that there are good men on certain issues that disagree. And the two issues I refer to are baptism and the the Lord's return. Baptism, some believe that the children of those that believe should be baptized as uh, a fulfillment of the covenant promises. I've had those men sit me down. I've had men open the scriptures and try to instruct me concerning infant baptism. And I have to say, I do not see it. I understand what they're saying. I see, the, I see the line of reasoning. I see the line that they're arguing. But I just can't get to the point where I see that that is a doctrine that is taught to God's people. Does that mean that I can't be a member in good standing because historically Presbyterian churches have been paedobaptist? No. Our denomination understands that good men have fallen on both sides of the issue. For every John Calvin, you have a C.H. Spurgeon. For every John Knox, you have a John Gill. Men who love Christ, preach the gospel, knew the blessing of God on their ministries, but disagreed concerning baptism. And baptism is mentioned a whole lot more in the Scriptures than the details that we are surmising about concerning creation. And so if that liberty of conscience should be given to men and women who want to be members of our denomination on a, on a matter that is frequently mentioned, then how much more should liberty of conscience be given to God's people on these issues concerning creation? Now, you don't have the right to deny baptism, Right? Our liberty of conscience only extends so far. In eschatology, you can be premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, but you can't be no millennial in regard to the return of Christ. You can hold views, but there are certain views that we will not accept. And so within the realm of a biblical view of creation, we must be governed by what's revealed in the word of God. Anything else is speculation. And if it's speculation... We, if, if, if true biblical doctrine that we know for sure should be accompanied by grace and humility and meekness, then most assuredly, stuff that we're not sure about should also be accompanied with that spirit. And so, keep that in mind. The world that, was create, that Christ created, first of all, was far different than the world that exists now. Several things I want to consider under this theme of the world that Christ created being different than it, was now, than it is now. First of all, the world that Christ created fell into bondage with Adam and all his posterity. It isn't just that Adam and all of his posterity fell into sin and the bondage that came with that sin. The scripture is clear that the world itself, creation itself, fell into a bondage because of Adam's sin. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. The very first aspect of God's judgment upon man because of his sin involved the earth. Keep that in mind. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. Because of you... I'm cursing the ground. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth unto thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it thou wast thou taken. For dust thou art and unto dust shalt thou return. You cannot read those three verses without seeing the, the intimate connection between Adam and the earth. So much so that when man ultimately passes away, he returns to the very earth from which he was taken. The earth was cursed when man fell into sin, and man returns back to that cursed earth when he dies. So the earth itself fell into a a similar type of bondage with Adam And his posterity. That bondage is again mentioned in Romans chapter 8. The passage that we read earlier during our service. Verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature. Okay. I mentioned this before. The word creature just means creation. Okay. So much so that a few verses later in verse 22 it's translated creation, okay? So we can, we can say that's what it is, right? It's, it's, it's a different way of translating it, but it's talking about creation. For the earnest expectation of the creation waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, okay? The, the earth has been subjected to a vanity, for the purpose, ultimately, of being delivered from that. The one who has subjected the earth has done so in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. The very hope that we have, and the groanings and the desire that we have to be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty that God has for us, the Scripture uses similar language and, and talks about the earth itself. And the Lord has put the earth under this bondage for the very same reason and because of the very same reason that we are under this bondage man fell into sin man Adam's fall into sin wasn't just for Adam didn't just affect Adam didn't it just affect Adam and Eve even though the eyes of them both were opened after Adam ate the fruit go back and read that passage it's very interesting I'm not going to comment on it but think about that Eve ate she gave to Adam then he ate and the eyes of them both were opened Covenant was made with Adam. Eve's eyes weren't open until Adam ate when the eyes of them both were open. Something happened to Adam's posterity the moment he ate. And it wasn't just Adam's posterity. It was the very ground upon which Adam walked. The world itself fell into bondage with Adam and his posterity. Now Lenski, in commenting on this, says this. This is, a, this is a great way of putting it. A calamity came upon the whole earth earthly creature world, when its crown and head, Adam, fell. Then the creation was made subject to vainness. The world is full of sinners, full of ungodliness. God's wrath is revealed against it. How can the creatures who were made for man serve him in the way in which God intended when he made them for man? The purposes and objects for which they are used are failures, utter failures because of Adam's sin. Man eats of the fruit of the earth and dies. That was not what these fruits were made for. Man uses the animals and his life ends by perishing. That was not God's intent. This vainness has entered the creatures themselves so that they can even help to hurt and destroy man. In countless ways, all is against him. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Genesis 3.17. I, I, I love the way he put that. Is that. It wasn't possible for creation to continue the way it was created. If the crown of God's creation fell. The very environment in which man was placed could no longer be suitable for him. It couldn't minister to him the way God intended. So almost by necessity, the animal world. And the physical earth had to fall in to a bondage uh, because of Adam's breaking of the covenant. So it fell into bondage with Adam and all his posterity. The second thing we see under this is that it was already destroyed. Okay, It isn't just that it fell into bondage with Adam after, his, after the fall into sin. Something happened after the fall into sin in which the Lord destroyed the world that then was. Genesis chapter seven, verses fifteen through twenty-four, we read, And they went in unto Noah and the Ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they that and they that went in, male and female of all flesh, as God commanded him, for the Lord shut him, and the Lord shut him in. And the flood was forty days upon the earth, and the waters increased, and bare up the ark. died that moved upon the earth both of fowl and of cattle and of beasts and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man all in whose nostrils was the breath of life of all that was in the dry land died and every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground both man and cattle and creeping things in the fowl of heaven and they were destroyed here's the second time it's used destroyed from off the earth And Noah only remained alive and they that were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed upon the earth in 150 days. Two times you find in the Genesis account uh, the word destroyed concerning the world that Christ created. When he first spoke the world into being, it was perfect. It was righteous. Man fell into sin. The world slipped into bondage with with Adam in his sin. Then in Genesis chapter 7 several chapters later, at a different time, because of man's sin, the Lord said, I'm going to destroy the world. Now, he didn't obviously obliterate the world, but everything that would, we would consider the world, everything that was on the surface, everything that was essential to man's life was destroyed because of sin. This is explained for us, this account is explained to us in 2 Peter chapter 3. We read that last week. I said I was going to come back to consider this. And this is how, uh, this is where I want to apply that passage. Because Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 6, tells us, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Even if these men denied how the world was created. What they're saying is the Lord never judged sin before. All things continue as they were. He's not coming again to judge sin. Peter goes on to say, for this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. That's why I say the world that Christ created is different than the world that we have today. It was destroyed. Or if you want to use Peter's language, as we just read, he described it as the world that then was. Okay? The world that then was. There were things about the world before the flood that were much different than the world that we see today. So much so that God says he destroyed the old world and Peter actually uses the word that says the world that then was, was perished. Okay? So keep that in mind. It was already destroyed. Now, Ken Ham, who uh, I love Ken Ham and his work. Not saying I agree with everything that he says concerning uh, the pre-diluvium, right? The, the pre-flood world. But he makes a statement in, in one of his books. And I, I want to read this statement. People often make the statement, if there is so much evidence that God created the world and sent a global cataclysmic flood, then surely all scientists would believe this, right? If the Lord has given so much evidence and has shown us clearly that he destroyed the world, then all scientists, if they are after the facts, if they are after the science, right? I'm sick of that term. We need to come up with a different term. I'm sick of, of being told that, that the opinions and views that I have concerning social events are to be rejected because only those that hold to one certain view have the science, right? Somehow, science uh, has been twisted and corrupted in our day. I, I, the term the science, as if they've got the paper and the book of the science, and if you don't hold to their view on the science, then you're, you're mistaken. And it's so funny that as time goes by, so much of the science gets disproven, right? It gets disproven. But science is the consideration of the facts, what to do with the facts that we find in the world around about us. And if scientists then are to consider the facts and the evidence. And as Ham says here, if there's so much evidence that God created the world, why aren't all scientists creationists? Right? He goes on to say, the solution is given here in this passage, 2 Peter chapter 3. It's not simply a matter of providing evidence to convince people. For people do not want to be convinced. We read in Romans chapter 1 verse 20 that there is enough evidence to convince everyone that God is creator. So much so that we are condemned if we don't believe. Furthermore, Romans chapter 1 verse 18 tells us that men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's not a matter of lack of evidence to convince people that the Bible is true. The problem is that they do not want to believe that the Bible is true. This reason... The reason for this is obvious. If people believed in the God of the Bible, they would have to acknowledge his authority and obey the rules he has laid down. However, every human being suffers from the same problem, the sin which Adam committed in the Garden of Eden, a disease which we all inherit. Adam's sin was rebellion against God's authority. Likewise, people everywhere today are in rebellion against God. So to admit that the Bible is true would be an admission of their own sinfulness and rebellious nature and of their need to be born again by the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, modern geology today tells us that there never was a worldwide flood as described in the Bible. We are told that millions of years of geological processes can explain the enormous fossil record in the sedimentary rock layers around the earth's surface. However, creationists have shown that the fossil-bearing rock layers were produced by enormous catastrophic processes consistent with Noah's flood. But evolutionists refuse to accept this, for to do so would mean that the Bible's right. And thus, the whole of their evolutionary philosophy would have to be rejected. These people are, quote, willingly ignorant. About the facts that do not support their evolutionary ideas, but do fit into a model of geology based upon what the Bible says concerning Noah's flood. This is another fulfillment of prophecy right before our very eyes. That's what he says concerning the truth concerning what took place in the world. The world was, it fell into bondage with Adam and his posterity, it was already destroyed. Uh, and then we go on to see also under this that man changed. Man changed. Genesis chapter 3 tells us, And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took to them wives of all which they made. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Okay, These are the words preceding the Lord telling us what he will do in the flood. The very first thing that caught the Lord's attention was the wickedness of man. And he said, my spirit will not always strive with man. His years will be 120. Now, shortly after the flood, you find the life expectancy or the the span of the human life. It drops off greatly. Now, there's, there's differences. Obviously, not everyone dropped dead at the age of 120. Some lived a little longer. Some lived a little shorter. But... The point of what is being said here by the Lord is that one of the aspects that will come about because of man's rebellion is his lifespan will be extremely diminished. And so shortly after the flood, what do you find? Abraham, Moses, Caleb, all these men in the Old Testament. And it it, it almost appears like, a, like a, the, the chart of a stock that's going out of business, right? It's like 900 and then immediately down into the 100s, 175, 150, and then it pulls this number until you get to David in the Psalms where David says his days are three score and 10. And if man is strong, he lives to be four score, which is 80, 70 or 80, okay? Something happened upon the earth that caused man to go from living 900 years upon the earth to 100 and some years and then down to 70 and 80. That's, that's what happened. And so the Lord gives us the first indication here in Genesis chapter 6 that that would take place. And so I say not just the world changed, but man who was judged because of his sin, the Lord says at some point, and we know from Scripture's the scriptural account, it took place after the flood, that his days are going to be limited. So something happened to man. Man was different. What was it like to live upon the earth before the flood and live 900 years? I don't know. Does the Bible tell us what it was like to live on the earth for 900 years? It doesn't tell us. We only know what it says, and then we can see what takes place afterward. So of all the things that you can speculate about, this much we can say. After the flood, man changed. His years changed, and they changed drastically. We also see, fourthly, the animals changed. It wasn't just man that changed because of the flood. The animals changed. After the flood, in Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, the Lord says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. Very similar language that was given to Adam before the fall. Most people don't realize that, that the commandment to be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth was actually given to Adam before he fell into sin. Well, It's almost as if now this is a new creation, a new world. And so the Lord looked at it that way. Well, how do you know the Lord looked at it that way? Because he gives the same command to Adam that he gave to, or to to Noah that he gave to Adam so many years before. So is it proper to say that the world was destroyed? I think it is proper. The Lord uses those words. And then his approach is is, it's almost as if the world, that the the, the Lord hit the, the reset button. On the world, and now the first command given to Adam: be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. The same commandment that was given to Adam, or the, the, the command was given to Noah. It was the same commandment given to Adam so long ago. But he goes on to say, and the fear of you—this is verse two—and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every fowl of the air and upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea, into your hand are they delivered. And he goes on to say that now they've been given as food. But the point I want you to say, and we can say a lot about that as well, but the point I want you to see is that that even the animals changed. What was it like before the flood in regard to man's relationship with the animals? I don't know. Did, did the lion come right up to Adam and eat? Like Could you... Could you pet them almost as if all the animals were d- domesticated? I don't know. But I know this much. You couldn't pet a lion after the flood. And you can't pet a lion today. Something happened in the, in the animals. And it wasn't connected to Adam's fall into sin. It took place after the flood. Again, saying that there's a difference between our world today and that world that existed between man's fall into sin and the flood could it have been that you could go right up to animals could it be that if you called them they came maybe maybe that's why Noah was able to get them into the ark so easily I don't know doesn't tell us uh, a whole lot about that but I know this much that other than divine intervention Noah wouldn't be able to get them back into the ark after the flood they were gone and when they saw Noah they ran from him and if Noah got too close to some of them, he better have a sword or something to beat him off with because they were afraid of man. So all these things tell us that, uh, that the animals changed as well. And then I would even go so far as to say that the atmosphere changed. The atmosphere, the world itself was different for a number of reasons. First of all, there was no rain before the flood. The Lord makes that very clear in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord made the heaven and the earth. Every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. No rain. And there was not a man to till the ground, but there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Okay? When we need the ground to be watered, we need it to rain. Before the flood... In that time between creation and the flood, the ground was watered by, by, uh, by this mist or dew, some type of dew. Do I know exactly what it was? No. But I know this much, the Lord said there was no rain. There was no rain. The second thing we see under this point of the atmosphere changing is that the flood rain came in from a section of water above the earth that was there from the first week of creation. Okay. Now, again there's differences of opinion. This is why I started the message in the introduction by saying on some of these things where we speculate, there, there's, there's differences of opinion. But in Genesis chapter 2, in that same section where it says that he caused the dew to come up to water the earth, it says, And God said, Let there be a firmament in the, in the midst of the waters. Okay, this is before even the world, the dry land appeared. Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. So there's a, an expanse that is existing between the water. There was water on the earth. Now there's an expanse between the water that's below and the water that's above. And that's what he goes on to say. It says, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And the evening and the morning were the second day. Now when it comes to the layout of the world, especially in the passage that I just considered the scripture doesn't tell us much, okay? It tells us, it gives us facts, but doesn't tell us what it looked like, okay? And this applies to the earth, the sky, the atmosphere, and beyond. When it comes to those aspects, I believe we can kind of piece something together. Again, you know, if there's differences of opinion even among men who do this for a living, then don't hold my feet to the fire on some of this, right? Or I'll I'll say what Dr. Barrett said concerning eschatology, he said, if someone puts a gun to my head and tells, me, and, and tells me to deny Jesus Christ, I'll say pull the trigger. If someone puts a gun to my head and says, what's your view of eschatology? I would say, what do you want me to believe? <laughs> when it comes to some of these passages where we're not sure, the obvious understanding is we need to give liberty of conscience. We need to be gracious to people. And so there was no, no rain before the flood and this flood rain then, I believe, came from this section of water made from the firmament that was created. I believe we can paste these things together, however blurry of what the world looked like shortly after creation. When it comes to what the Bible calls the firmament, I believe the firmament is divided into two sections. Again, there's differences of opinion on this. The open firmament and a closed firmament. You say, well, that doesn't say that there. It just says that the waters on the earth and this space, this firmament divides the water on the ground from the water that's above the firmament. But later, or actually earlier, when, when in Genesis chapter 1, God... Uh, made these things he says and God said let the firmament be in the midst of the waters let it divide the waters from the waters and God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament it was so God called the firmament heaven and the evening and the morning were the second day then on day four we read God said let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven same firmament "...to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs, and for seasons, and for days, and for years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of heaven, to give light upon the earth." And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth, and to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day." Now, if you can imagine what it appears to be saying is that the world was water. He created a space that he called the firmament or heaven. Then within that space, he put the sun, moon, and stars. Now, if the firmament was just one part, you would have to say then that the water that was divided is on the other side of the sun, the moon, and the stars. So you would have water, the firmament, Within the firmament, the sun, moon, and stars, and then the water. Okay, I don't believe that that is the interpretation that we're to arrive at. And the reason why is because in Genesis, during the creation, the Lord tells us, he gives a specific adjective talking about one portion of the firmament. So it's almost as if God divided the firmament himself. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 20, it says, God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that they may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created the great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind, and God saw it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the fowl multiply on the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Okay, so these fowl that live on the earth, they were made on the earth, but they are said to fly in the open firmament. Now, is it possible that there's an open firmament, and then there's a part of the firmament that's closed? And is it possible that the closed firmament, into which the birds can't fly, would be the part of the firmament that contains the sun, moon, and stars? And is it possible, then, that the water that was above the firmament is actually just outside our atmosphere? Well, I believe it is. I believe that's what the Lord's telling us in these early chapters of Genesis. He's not saying that the the sun, moon, and stars were put in the sky, and then beyond the sun, moon, and stars is the rest of the water that came from the earth. What he's saying is that the, the waters were divided, and the firmament that divided the waters that were above the earth from the waters below the earth are all right there in the earth's ecosystem. They're right there in the earth's atmosphere. And the reason why I say that the waters that were separated that are above the firmament uh, are in the earth's ecosystem is because, and it's, I'm not alone on this, most people that are conservatives believe that that water that was above the firmament came down as the rain that was during Noah's day. You remember, the, there was no rain. There was no rain on the earth. There was a dew that watered the garden and watered the ground, the entire ground, the whole of creation was watered this way well where did the rain come from most conservatives the puritans those that we would agree with doctrinally believe that it was this water that was above the firmament matthew henry says this we begin with the apostles account of the destruction which was already once upon the earth by the word of god the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished originally the world was otherwise situated The waters were most wisely divided at creation and most beneficially for us. Some of the waters had proper uh, proper repositories above the firmament, here called the heavens, and others under the firmament gathered together unto one place. Then there were both sea and dry land, commodious habitation for the children of men. But now, at the time of the universal deluge, the case is strangely altered. The waters which God had divided before, assigning to each part his, its convenient receptacle, receptacle now th- does he in anger throw down together again in a heap. He breaks up the fountains of the great deep and throws open the windows, that is the clouds of heaven, uh, till the whole earth is overflowed with water. Not a spot can be found upon the highest mountains. And he goes on to talk about Uh, what we've already considered uh, concerning creation. He says, is not here a change and a most awful change? And then it is to be observed that all this was done by the word of God. It was by his powerful word that the world was made at first and made in so commodious and beautiful a frame and order. And so Matthew Henry obviously believes that the water that came down in the form of rain after the Lord closed Adam and Eve in, and after the fountains of the deep were broken up, that that water came down uh, as a, a flood. Uh, there are those that have put this together in what's often called the canopy theory, that there was a, a, a vapor canopy or a water canopy around the earth. And I say this to say that even most Christian scientists kind of poo-poo the idea of the canopy theory. And in so doing would say, we just don't know what this water is, Right? But in attempting to deal with what the water is, uh, Christian scientists have come up with the canopy theory, one of the arguments against it is, well, the canopy theory would have held in too much of the solar radiation. would have acted as a, like a runaway greenhouse effect. And so technically, anyone on the earth would have been, in essence, boiled alive. I don't think that those, uh, those thoughts can actually dismiss the canopy theory because, first of all, we don't know how thick the canopy was. It doesn't take much water to flood the earth if the fountains of the deep are the main source of it. It could be a very thin canopy. The second thing is, we don't know what the world was like before the flood. You can't take the world as we see it now, as the scripture clearly said, it says it's a different world than it was before, and run your scientific theories as to what would happen to that world if it had a vapor canopy around it. I acknowledge it may not have been. And I acknowledge that Based upon the way the world is now, yeah, it may have created runaway greenhouse effect. The problem is, we don't know what the world was like before the flood. So there's, there's, there's elements of the equation that are missing. You can't find an answer in math unless you have the elements. You put all these things there. If too many pieces of the equation are missing, you can't derive a, a definite conclusion. And so while they say that Given the circumstances now, the way the world is now, yeah, it would, be, it would create uh, an, an atmosphere that no one could consist. We don't know what the world was like before the flood. And so again, to, to come up with a, a rational understanding of what the world was like in those days and what, what was the water that was above the flood, even the Puritans, understanding that they weren't scientists, are trying to put it together. And, and Matthew Henry acknowledges that the world that was the water that was separated by this firmament that was above the open firmament uh, came down and that's where, where the, the rain came from, the flood. Did it happen that way? I don't know. But I, 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 can, I can see it happening that way. When I flew here, right, I flew in the open firmament. I'm not entirely sure where the, the closed part of the firmament begins, right? Is it just outside our atmosphere? Well, it can't be just outside our atmosphere because people have gone just outside our atmosphere, Uh, you know there's there's been too many cases too many clear demonstrations of people going out of our atmosphere and we just we, we need to end it there and leave it there is that we know for sure there's a closed part of our atmosphere in which the birds fly and we can travel and we can live i climb a little too far up in that that open atmosphere i can't live too much i can't even breathe at the grand canyon right the birds can do it but it's still open right And I believe that there's a part that's closed. And so I I say all that to say uh, there's a lot of speculation. And I think that this is a safe way for believers to approach. Again, the the banner over all of this needs to be we don't know. We don't know what the world was like before the flood. What was it like to walk out knowing that the ground was going to be watered by a dew? How heavy was that dew? Had to have been pretty heavy. Not like a, a dew that we get today. So again, we're, we're in the realm of the unknown, but we're trying to wrestle with the revelation that we've been given. And under this point, the last thing I want to say is that after the barrier was removed during the flood, a large portion of the earth was no longer habitable due to the change of climate, right? Now, don't tell people that I came here preaching climate change, right? Preaching climate change and preaching that there was a change in the climate after the flood are two different things, Right? The nonsense that we hear today about climate change being the result of too much carbon in the air, okay, that's definitely at at best it's debatable. Okay, we'll say that. At, At best it's debatable. What took place on the world after the flood is not debatable. Okay, for a number of reasons. There was a mist, a dew that came up to water the ground. The only way this could happen is if the water the earth was one climate. Again, if we're going off of what the scripture says and trying to understand that, that you would understand if the entire world, the entire earth was watered by a dew, that, that it would have to be very close in climate uh, for that to happen. Um, there's also uh, questions concerning where the uninhabitable, part, uninhabitable parts of the earth came, the polar extremes that we have. Did the Lord design and make the earth originally where parts of the earth were not inhabited? I don't believe he did. Did they come in after the flood? Probably. The polar extremes probably came in after the flood when the vapor canopy was removed. Either that or that the the extremes were there in the uninhabited part of the earth and during the flood when the continents were divided, the earth then was pushed into that type of climate. Okay, so that's the, the extremes that we have on on ground, on earth, either came in because that which created the, the universal climate was removed, which was the vapor canopy, or now parts of the earth are frozen uh, because of the ground shifting, the, can- the the continental divide. Like it wasn't, the cold air may have been there, but there was no land there. But once the continents were divided, then that's what took place. I don't think the second view is the view. I think it was more that the polar extremes were created from the removal of the vapor canopy. And part of the reason why I say that, again, there's, there's differences of opinion in the scientific world, but there've been too many cases where animals have been fully preserved immediately in ice in the Siberian tundra. Uh, and and by, by being fully preserved, I mean to the point that when they've been removed from the ice, that sometimes these animals and the meat that they have on their bones is edible. It's edible. Like people have eaten this stuff that they pull out of the ice from thousands of years ago. Right? So for that to happen, there had to have been an instantaneous preservation. Almost like you going to the store, buying a steak and sticking it in the freezer. Right? That's in essence what had to have happened. They've pulled animals out. This one lion that they pulled out was so fully preserved that its whiskers were still attached Which would tell you that there was no decomposition whatsoever. How can that happen? We weren't there. I don't know. But something preserved it immediately. Now some creation scientists say, well, it wasn't from the flood because if it was, you'd have scores and scores and scores of animals. Like all the animals that were in the earth would be preserved. I'm not sure that's the case either. To get full preservation, you have to have conditions that are almost impossible to arrive at. And so, is it possible the world destroyed the world by a flood and not, then most animals were just destroyed and decomposed? Yeah, yeah. Some people believe that's why when Noah released the dove, the dove did not return to the ark. The, 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 the raven, the unclean bird, could find carcasses, could find dead animals, something to, but something that's clean like the dove could not find a place to rest. So it returned to the ark. It wasn't until later that the water subsided that Noah knew the only way this bird's going to stop flying is if it comes back to here or lands on the earth because it's not going to, to land on a dead animal. It's a clean bird. So when the dove came back, it didn't come back anymore, then Noah knew that the ground was, was available. So could it be that most of the, the living creatures were right after the flood floating on the, on the earth and then suffered decay? from bacteria, I think that's, that's the case. I think the rarity was that conditions were such that, that an animal got fully preserved immediately because of the removal of the canopy. Uh, and there's enough of that to tell us that that's the way it happened. And so again, you have to have uh, some, some flexibility in how you uh, approach this. But the one thing that we can say is that a large portion of the earth for sure was uninhabitable after uh, the flood, and I believe it was from the removal of that, that vapor canopy. And so the world that Christ created was far different than the world that exists now. Just very quickly, the last two points, and uh, with this we'll wrap up uh, the world that Christ created. The world that exists now has an end that has already been determined. Okay, So we dealt with the world that was before the flood that Christ created. It was a different world after the flood. The Lord actually uses the word destroyed it. Okay, What came forth was different. The world that thou now is, is that world that Noah stepped out of the ark onto is the world that we're living in today, okay? In Genesis 8, verse 21, well, first of all, it was promised to Noah that this world, uh, the end of this world has been determined already by God. It was promised to Noah uh, in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, and the Lord smelled a sweet savor. This was the sacrifice that Noah offered after the flood. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for men's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. While the earth remaineth, which tells you what? There's coming a time when the earth as it is now will not remain in the form that it is. The, what do I mean the form that it is? Well, Look at how he describes it. There's coming a time when seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will not exist anymore as long as the earth remains in this current fashion. Which tells us that there was a promise given to Noah that the Lord would not do this again. This is why most Christian scientists believe that the continental divide that took the world from one landmass to the continents we see today could only have happened during the flood Because if it had happened at a later time, it would have created another cataclysmic flood. If we get an earthquake, the simple shifting of plates, tectonic plates, in a certain area, and that creates a tsunami that wipes out miles of coastland, what would it have done if the entire continental divide had taken place after the flood? It would have wiped out the earth again. And so I think that was probably connected to the fountains of the deep breaking up. The Lord then separated as part of that the continents. Uh, as we see them today and so it was promised to Noah that the world that is now will continue until these times of of seed time and harvest and all that was is is accomplished but then in a greater fashion you say well that that doesn't do it for me that doesn't clinch it for me that the world's going to continue until it's destroyed well Peter in our passage in 2nd Peter chapter 3 tells us this and this is the second thing, not only was it promised to Noah as part of the covenant, but it's promised to the apostles as part of the gospel, right? When you see the word covenant in the Old Testament, just insert the word gospel. Covenant language in the Old Testament is gospel language. So when the, God, when the Lord remembered his covenant with Noah, and he made the promise that the world was not going to be destroyed, that's a gospel promise connected to the work of Christ. The Lord wasn't going to destroy the world again because Christ had to come into the world, right? Christ came into the world to redeem us and the the, the promise is connected to the covenant. We have a promise connected to the gospel in the New Testament, in our passage, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished, but the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. That is... The same exact moment that is referred to in Genesis when the Lord says, as long as the earth remains. When's the earth going to remain to? To the day that Peter describes when the Lord returns. That's, that's what's told us in Second Peter chapter 3. Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 and 2. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. Right? Same exact description given in 2 Peter chapter 3. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Right? The church, the New Jerusalem, bride for her husband, coming down to the new earth. A new heavens and a new earth. Okay? Promised to Noah, promised to the apostles. Again, the passage we read, Romans chapter 8. I'm not going to read the passage again. But the very Creation itself is groaning for the day when the sons of God will be made manifest. And that's the the event described in Revelation chapter 21, the new heavens and the new earth. Lenski again, for the creation's watching with outstretched head is waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. The translation is awkward because the Greek words contain so much. And he goes on to talk about these Greek words. It literally means to wait it out. And to stretch the head, the whole creation is stretching the head, waiting it out until the day when the sons of God are manifested. The words are strong indeed. The head stretched forth in intense watching, waiting and never tiring or desisting until the the thing waited for appears, right? We do that. You see someone arriving and you're watching and you you stretch out your head and you're waiting for that, that thing to appear. That's the language. The whole creation groaning and travailing, waiting for the day that the sons of God are made manifest. The tremendous thought being unfolded here is that all of God's inferior creation, right? Everything other than man. Man is the crown of his creation. All of, man, all of God's inferior creation was from the start bound up with man. Was not independent, but wholly dependent upon man. And now, since the fall, the creature world in its ultimate destiny, destiny is bound up, not with the ungodly, who shall perish in hell, but with the godly and with their coming revelation of glory in heaven. I would just disagree with that last part. The coming glory on the earth. I don't believe that the eternal state is in heaven. I believe that the promises of spending eternity with Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the new heaven and the new earth. The bride is coming down, not going up, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. But if you, if you were to put that into his quote, right? It's not inspired, so I'll twist this quote. And now since the fall, the creature world and its ultimate destiny is bound up not with the ungodly who shall perish in hell, but with the godly and with their coming revelation of glory on the new earth. That's what I anticipate. That's what I'm looking for. Promise to the apostles. And then the last thing, and and with this we'll we'll close. The world that is coming shall continue for all eternity. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, there was the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, neither need they no candle, neither the light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever what's being described there what was said to noah as long as the earth remaineth day and night shall not cease obviously there's no need for the sun that's the end of the old world it's the new earth and it's all ushered in by the return of christ the very one that came into the world to accomplish redemption what did he redeem us from yes he redeemed us from our own sins our own transgressions of the law but in a greater sense, what did Christ redeem us from? He redeemed us from the guilt that was inherited from Adam. The very beginning of all of the corruption and all of the, the changes that took place upon the earth. This is why, in this passage, at the very end of the scriptures, Christ is often referred to as the great curse reverser. What's going on in Revelation 22? The effects of the curse are no more, it's, it's come full circle. It's come full circle. The circle started with Adam and his failure. It plunged man into sin and the earth into bondage. Christ's return, judging the ungodly, yes, but specifically as it applies to his people. Finishing the work of redemption, that very thing that the creation is waiting for, the the manifestation of the sons of God. It happens when Christ returns and the earth comes along with it. If it went along for the ride on the way down, the world that we're on is going to come for the ride on the way up. And we will be with Christ forever upon this new earth. What's that going to be like? If I don't know what the world was like before the sin and before the flood, how can I with a corrupt mind even begin to describe to you a world without sin? I don't know. I have no idea what it's going to be like. Just like I don't really know what it was like before the flood. But there's things that I can say about it, right? There's things I can say about it. And one thing I know is that I won't have have sin. The very thing that God had to protect Adam from doing after he fell into sin, eating of the tree of life. You ever wonder why God protected Adam from eating of the tree of life? Without getting into too many details, just to make it very simple. If Adam ate of the tree of life, he was going to be confirmed in the state that he was in. That's why some people believe that the covenant that was made with Adam was very simple. Two trees. Adam needed to eat of the one and not eat of the other. And he chose to eat of the wrong tree. Why is it then after man falls into sin that God has to protect the tree of life? He protects it with an angel like a flaming sword. like You can't come back and eat this. Was it because God was mad with him and just said, no, now you can't eat it? No, the tree of life represented something. That had Adam obeyed the law, the command that God gave to eat of the tree of life, he would have been confirmed. But we're not told on any of that. All I know is that every covenant has rewards for obedience. If you say that God made a covenant with Adam in the garden, there had to have been a reward for obedience. Otherwise, it's not a covenant. So what was the reward that God offered Adam? Adam? For obedience, it had to have been eating of the tree of life. Why do I say that? Because now in Revelation 22, there's the tree of life. And now I can come and eat of the tree of life. The very tree that was, was being protected by an angel to make sure Adam wouldn't eat. Why? Because if Adam ate, I would be confirmed forever in the estate of fallen, sinful Chris Barnes. But because of the work of Jesus Christ and being joined to Christ and having his righteousness put to my account, God views me as accepted and accepted for all eternity. And what's the symbolic way of saying that? Now I can eat of the tree of life. Everything comes full circle because of the work of Christ. The world that is coming will continue for all eternity. What's it going to be like To be with each other, right? Without having sinful thoughts. I mean, I'm a great guy, but I'm sure there's stuff that I do that bothers many of you, right? There's stuff that I do that bothers my own wife. If there's one person on the earth that said, I could put up with this guy so much so that I'm gonna live with him for the rest of my days, it's my wife. And I annoy her, right? Because I'm sinful. I'm sinful. What will it be like? To be with Chris Barnes and not have Chris Barnes get on your nerves. I don't know. Because I can't do it. I'm, it's not within my, my nature right now. But it will be one day. You and I are going to be on the new earth with the Savior. And sin will be removed. And we will have perfect fellowship. If I get together with you today and enjoy fellowship with you, my heart's warmed, right? It's a, it's a legitimate blessing. What's it going to be like to get together with God's people, never to be separated again, and to be with the Savior for all eternity without sin? Death is the great enemy. Paul even refers to it. The last great enemy that's destroyed is death. But isn't it so ironic, such is the nature of the victory we have in Christ, that it takes the great enemy to launch us out into that realm of being sinless, right? I tell people, I'm looking forward to the day of my death. Okay, I don't got a death wish. I don't want you to come up and shoot me saying, oh, you said you're looking forward to the day of your death. What I mean by that is I'm looking forward to the moment when I breathe my last. And then the next conscious moment I have, I'm sinless. What's that going to feel like? What's it going to be like? And then I will be that way for all eternity. There's only one time. In my experience, as, as, as someone joined to Christ, it's only one time from now throughout eternity that I will go from sinful to sinless. And that's when I breathe my last, or Christ returns. So we look at death and we say it's a great enemy. But such is the, the love of God for us that even facing the greatest enemy becomes the doorway for us to experience the greatest moment of exhilaration that a believer will ever experience going from sinful to sinless. Uh, it's, can you say it's not that bad? I mean, Paul says for this present suffering, it's just for a, a little time, worketh for us in a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. It's, I'm not downplaying the suffering, right? My brother-in-law is suffering, Okay. He's going through a form of death I don't want to go through. But he also knows that coming shortly will be his last breath. And he can't wait to see his Savior. He can't wait to open his eyes consciously. It won't be in his body, but it'll be a conscious awareness that he's in the presence of Christ without sin. It can't be that bad. And that's the great enemy. If that's the best that the great enemy can do, which is death then God's people are the most blessed people on the face of the earth. If that's the best that the greatest enemy can do is launch us into an eternity with Christ. So I trust that, as I said, some of these things are not as definitive, but praise the Lord, some of them are. And it constitutes the great hope that we have as God's people. Let's remember to keep the things that are not clear to a minimum and spend The days upon the earth talking about the great things that our Savior has accomplished for us. I I don't like dealing with some of the stuff that I speculate on. Maybe you can even sense that as I'm speaking. But nothing thrills me more than to think about what I know for sure, specifically concerning the work of Christ. Those are the great truths that we need to take our time. Don't, Don't waste your time talking about the stuff we don't know for sure. Talk about the stuff that we know is for sure. Encourage God's people and encourage the ungodly to come to Christ. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank Thee once again for what is clearly revealed in Thy Word. We're thankful that we do not have to speculate concerning what is the future of Thy people. It's it's referred to as our hope. Father, help us to glory in the work of Christ. The one who created the world, the one who came to Adam providing a coat of skins, the one who came into the world to take our nature to redeem us, will also come again to take us to to, to be with himself and to give us a permanent dwelling place upon a sinless earth with a sinless body among sinless brethren for all eternity. Lord, we look forward to that day and we would say even with the apostle even so come Lord Jesus Father we're thankful for this thy truth blessed to our hearts we ask in Jesus name, Amen we're going to end the service by singing hymn number 128, Man of Sorrows hymn number 128 and you can stand together as we sing stand together